Well, as Andy said, we'll be in uh, Luke chapter 8, looking at these two episodes in the life and ministry of our Savior. Actually, it's four concurrent episodes that we're going to do in two parts. Uh, The Lord Jesus uh, reveals His power over danger, over demons, over disease, and then over death. We'll look at the first two this morning, and next week we'll catch the second two. Some, some of the worst cases of people and situations and circumstances, uh, desperate, if you will, hopeless, uh, what we'll do <laughs> by the time we get to next week is we think about these works of Christ. We'll be singing together, hopefully, hallelujah, what a Savior we have. Uh, that seems to be Luke's purpose and goal as he's put these four incidents back to back. In fact, they parallel with Mark. Mark does the uh, same thing as Uh, Peter has helped him understand the life of Jesus, the ministry. So Jesus had just spoken. We talked last week uh, uh, in the parable of the soils. He's just spoken about how important it is uh, how we hear. Uh, Verse 18 that we glanced at last week, take care then how you hear. That was the key word last week in our uh, passage, hearing. Hearing and not just hearing, but hearing and doing. Not just listening with our ears, but also letting those words then penetrate our heart and change our lives. We looked at uh, the two builders in Uh, Luke chapter 6, one who built his house on a firm foundation, the one who heard the word and did them, did what the word said to do. And his house stood when the flood came. The other heard the words but did not do what he was commanded to do. And when the storm and flood came, his house was destroyed. Then we looked at the parable of the soils again last week. And the one on the rocky soil was the one who received the word with joy. But as soon as the time of testing came, faded away. That joy faded. His apparent faith uh, was no longer obvious. And so what we have in this first story where Jesus calms the storm, we have an illustration. So what we want to think about as we uh, consider the verses 22 through 25, the storm and Jesus calming it and the disciples' experience through it is, how do these 12 fare in the midst of the circumstance of this storm? 
The last time they were around the water, they had a testing or a lesson of obedience. When Jesus stood on the shore, they had not caught anything, and he commanded them to put their nets on the other side. They were successful in obeying, and they had the net full of fish. Well, now, uh, here's another test for them on the water. There's a test of trust. Are they going to trust the Lord Jesus through all circumstances? Uh, Are you going to trust the Lord Jesus? Do you know what that means? That's a few of the considerations as we look to this story. Before we do, let's ask the Lord to help us. We've asked him for wisdom. We've asked him for understanding. We've asked him for forgiveness. We need to continue to be taught by him through his spirit. So we come to you, Father, this morning. And we ask that you would make your word alive to us. As we read and ponder these two episodes in the life of our Lord. Father, I pray that you would show us what you are like. Show us your mighty power. Impress upon our hearts who you are that we as Christians claim to serve, claim to be a part of your family, claim to be indwelt by you, your very spirit of holiness who lives within us. We ask that you would show us Jesus high and lifted up. Jesus, who is God. And yet in his humanity, he's like us. Lord, I pray that as the mysteries of the kingdom are being revealed to the disciples. And then you have preserved these words for us written on on the pages of our Bible. Lord, make them real to us. Penetrate our hearts, we pray. Father, we have many things to worry about tomorrow. And the next day, and the next day. Help us to cast those thoughts aside this morning. And attend to you, your word. Fill us with your spirit. And show us Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. 
So uh, uh, Mark and Matthew, as they relate this story, both say it's the end of a long day, and uh, they are getting in the boat and going to the other side. You see there in verse 22, Luke just says one day. This just He doesn't give us any uh, uh, pertinent information or any clear information, just here's a day in the life of Jesus in the ministry. They get into a boat with his disciples, and he said, let us go to the other side of the lake. It's almost as Luke is just kind of bare telling what's going on. is kind of a humdrum, if you will. It's just another day. Let's go to the other side. What we don't know is Jesus, uh, day planner, has uh, reminded him or helped him know, not, you know, that's figuratively speaking, of course, that he has an appointment in Gadaria, in the Ger- where the Gergesenes live. He's got an appointment with a young man or a man who is uh, hopeless and helpless. And so they get in the boat on the northwest shore of Lake Galilee, and they're headed east, going to the other side. And as soon as they get in the boat, verse 23, and uh, sail off, Jesus falls asleep. I don't know if uh, you travel much. I'm very envious of people who fall asleep on the airplane as soon as the wheels are up. I can't sleep on an airplane. Long trips, I need to. I want to. But anyway, Jesus is asleep in this boat. And then at the second part of verse 23, a windstorm came down on the lake. They were filling with water and were in danger. So uh, Jesus is asleep. The disciples are in the boat. They're going to the east side across the lake, and all of a sudden this windstorm comes up. That's not unusual in the Sea of Galilee. You have mountains 9,000 feet or so high. The lake is 600-some feet below sea level, so you have these cold winds coming down through the ravines of the mountainsides into the valley, the warmth coming up off the land and the lake, and it brings about these storms handful of these disciples are uh, veteran fishermen. They would be used to it. So this is not just one of those ordinary storms that happen on the Sea of Galilee on a regular basis. This one's different. The boat is filling up. They're in danger, and they are afraid. They cry out for help. Verse 24, They went and woke Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Matthew, Matthew says, uh, Teacher, Mark says, I'm sorry, Teacher, Teacher, we're perishing. Matthew says, Lord, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? We're about to die here, and you're sound, you're sound asleep. How did you do the last time a storm rose in your life? How did you fare? The disciples are afraid. They're panicking. They're uh, thinking that Jesus really doesn't care. And verse 24 continues, he awoke. 
he rebuked the wind or commanded the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. So Jesus stills the storm, uh, exercises his power over the elements of nature, commands the wind and the waves. Uh, verse 25, uh, the, that's what the disciples uh, say when it, who is this then that commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. Be still. And he did, didn't just calm the wind down, and so the, the, the uh, waves are still rolling, and they need to settle down, uh, but they immediately the turbulent seas become a sea of glass, a mirror of glass. Normally take hours. It happened immediately. I don't know if you've ever, uh, I, I mentioned that I like to fish. I don't do a lot of catching, but I like to fish. And, and I haven't been fishing much lately, but I used to love to fish in the Gulf when the water was clear and the trout would come in close to the beach. It would take a particular wind, a, a south-southeast wind would lay all the sand down and that water would get clear and you could use your lures or live shrimp and you could catch the trout. And if that wind would just move just a tick toward the south or to the west, the sand's right back. Days to get cleared back up again. No more trout fishing. Well, this happened immediately. This didn't take days. This didn't take hours. Immediately, not everything calmed down, but there was a calm, a sea of glass. Interesting that Jesus speaks to the waves and the winds. Well, they can't hear. They have no perception. Well, have a, uh, most likely it's for the accommodation of the disciples so that the disciples would see that he's sovereign over all of creation. God says, let there be light and there's light. God says, let there be the seas. The seas come into being, and then Jesus says, time to settle down, and all is calm. There is a calm. Uh, Hendrickson says, the waves synchronized into a sublime symphony of solemn silence. Very preachery. But all things have settled down, and with that, so the storm arises, Jesus Stills it, settles down. Verse 25, two questions come. He said to them, Jesus said to them, where is your faith? What happens to your faith when the storm, when the winds blow? He's not really, surely he's not saying, asking whether or not they have faith, but what happened to their faith in the circumstances that they were in? And so I just have in my notes, where is your faith? Where is my faith? My faith is strong as long as everything's going as I plan and as uh, it's comfortable. Where is my faith? Where is your faith? When the storms blow. 
you put your head on the pillow tonight, uh, and if you really think about it, do you know with good reason, I mean a viable basis, that if you died in your sleep, the Lord would take you to heaven? Is your faith that strong? And we used to pray with my mom and many of you. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Can you confidently pray like that? Knowing the Lord would take your soul if you died in your sleep. And if you're not, if you don't, have that confidence How do you go to sleep? How do you know you're not... How do you know that you may not wake up? I mean, we all want to die in our sleep, right? Isn't that the the way we want to go, right? Are you sure you want to die in your sleep? And what if it was tonight? How's your faith? As you think about the realities of eternity... Or do you know the true forgiveness and the assurance of God's love for you along with His uh, promised peace in the presence, in the present, and the power in in your daily life? Do you have that power come from God to endure to enjoy life daily. If you don't, your worldview is not adequate. The valid question is, where's your faith? Just another trip across the lake. The headquarters is on the shore of the lake. These disciples have been backward and forward, uh, hither and yon, across the lake. Just another trip across the lake. Just um, another school year starting. Just uh, another week coming up. Before you know it, it'll be Thanksgiving. Then Christmas, spring break, (laughs) yeah, summer and winter and then springtime and harvest, right? Daily tasks continue day after day, over and over, you think ever with Solomon, Vanity of is any of this really purposeful? But as this event unfolds, the disciples get to discover where they stand. Jesus is on his way to an appointment where the garrisons are, and they're interrupted by a storm. 
and the disciples get to assess their faith, Jesus will, will uh, go over the quiz at the end. Where's your faith? Much of our daily lives are just doing the next thing, right? I mean, just putting one foot in front of another, accomplishing the task that's before us. Yes, we plan. The Lord orders our days. But when life comes at you hard, where do you find yourself standing before God? Would Jesus or does Jesus have to ask you, where's your faith? When every little snag comes up. Big or small. When the storm comes and breaks the monotony of life. Having seen what he's done, having remembered what he's done for you in the past. On what are you basing your life? Your living? In what do you hope? So, where's your faith, Jesus says. And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? Uh, Arising out of their fear, they're beginning to realize that Jesus is God. Only God can calm the sea. To recognize he's so much more than they have so far imagined he is. Are those familiar, these salty disciples, James, John, Peter, and Andrew, at least, uh, they know the power of the sea. They know it cannot be tamed by man by any of us, any of them. Psalm 89, 8 through 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. O Lord Jehovah, you alone can tame the seas. The disciples ponder Psalm 89 and realize the man in the boat is very God of very God. Jesus stands, calms the wind, calms the waves, demonstrates the power that is reserved for God alone. The elements of nature obey Him. Notice the disciples are just as afraid in the calm as they are in the storm. Uh, In fear and in amazement, who is this? Jesus, who is King of kings, the King of glory, the Lord of hosts, strong and mighty, mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts. He is this king of glory. That's Psalm 24. Who can ascend God's hill? The one with 
clean hands and a pure heart can approach the Lord of glory. He is strong and mighty, mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And then the psalmist says, Selah. Let's stop and think about that before we go to the next line of the song. Think about that. He is the king of glory, mighty, strong. Look, we'll all have to face Jesus as Lord one day. He is Lord of all. I was listening to something that was reminded of Gordon Lightfoot wrote a song about a shipwreck on Lake Superior in the 70s. He asked this question, does anyone know where the love of God goes? You may know the song. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Um, Some of you may have asked that question recently. The minutes have turned to hours in the midst of a storm of life. And you ask, where are you, God? What's going on? Maybe you're not singing that song, Gordon Lightfoot's song, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but you're asking, you have those thoughts. Where has your love gone? I thought you loved me, God. Facing the pain of loss and disappointment and heartache. Have you not experienced the emerging or the rising up of Christ in the midst of those clouds? And if not, keep looking to Him. He will bring you peace in every circumstance if you come to Him in faith. Maybe the winds of adversity are still blowing, but outwardly, you're covering up your fears and doubts and pain, and you look very calm. Someone says, yeah, how you doing? I'm doing good. How you really doing? I'm doing fine. If you're not, is that really helpful to you or the person who asks? Say, well, they didn't really care. They were just asking me that. They asked me that every Sunday. Maybe they really do care. It doesn't help you to hide it. I'm not saying who you ought to tell it to, but you ought to share it with somebody. You can't ignore pain. It doesn't just go away. Disappointment turns into bitterness. I don't know, I was on a a music jags this week. Uh, Jesus, save your pilot me over life's tempestuous seas. Know that song? We would sing it in the old days. Uh, Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rocks and treacherous soul. Chart and compass, chart and compass come from thee, Jesus, Savior, pilot me.
chart and compass come from thee. Pilate, please, Lord Jesus. And God's word, he calls us to trust him. Just trust me. Where's your faith? Is it in God above? Is it in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Master, Teacher? Master, Teacher, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Yes, I care. So much I gave myself for you. With Christ in the boat, you can be confident you'll reach the shore, right? So we go on to the next one. They finally reached the shore, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Jesus stepped out on land, and there he met a man. There met him a man from the city who had demons. This is the appointment that he was keeping. When they left the western shore, they enter into the land, a Gentile land, by the way, of the Gerasenes, they arrive at their destination. Uh, they're journeying into forbidden territory for a Jewish teacher, a Jewish rabbi. He would be unclean as soon as his foot hit the ground. And for sure, as he uh, dealt with someone who'd been all through the cemetery in the graveyard, that would render him unclean. Jesus has been going from town to town, Jewish village to Jewish village now. He's going to the Gentile lands. Been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and he moves into this new territory, this new kind of people with the same good news. And so the parable of the soils, will, will, will the sowing of the seed apply the same as it has been in uh, the Jewish territories? What will happen as Jesus sows the seed here? It's really no different. We'll see it's really no different than in uh, Galilee where they've been and down in Judea. Uh, the town people who seem most likely uh, to be the uh, converts, who, who most likely to believe. They're like the hard dirt on the path where the seed would fall and it would just sit there. It wouldn't go down into the dirt. And so the birds would come and take it away. Satan take the gospel away from their minds and hearts. That's the way it happened in Galilee, if you remember. The least likely people are the ones with the hearts of rich soil that takes the seed in and it grows and bears fruit. This demoniac, this, this one possessed of demons is the least likely here and he becomes the fertile soil. And he is converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at his condition, verse 27. I mean, immediately as Jesus steps out, he meets him here. A long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Down in verse 29, you see a parenthesis if, if you have an ESV. 
For many a time it, had it, the unclean spirit, had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. There's his condition. This is the life experience of this man at this time. Humiliation. Naked. No clothes. Isolation. He's in the... Uh, Cemetery, subjection to these spirits, driven into a solitary life by this demonic activity, chained up, put under guard, but to no avail. He'd just break the chains with the supernatural power, apparently from the demons, and go out into the desert. Uh, It reminds me somewhat of what I read about in streets and cities, teeming with similarly type, similar types of people across our land. Um, what are we to do with people like him? You know, we've, uh, in, we have developed drugs to help people control their behavior. Um, to varying degrees of success. Um, We used to put some away to keep them from hurting themselves and others. We don't do as much of that anymore. and I'm not advocating we should or shouldn't. But we just kind of let people be and we stay away from them. I don't... Uh, claim at all to have a personal solution the gospel is the only hope how do we get the gospel to the homeless and uncivilized how do we do that practically speaking isn't Jesus a savior for them as much as he is for us in our pretty neighborhoods and fancy offices, nice schools. Somehow, people need to hear the gospel. How do we introduce Jesus into an environment that's really gotten out of hand? This man crossed the boundaries of human decency. And so, uh, he is... Well, he's demonized for one, but he's marginalized by society and he's hopeless in his situation, at least as Jesus approaches. Verse 28 begins the conversation. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? That's pretty amazing. If you have the New American Standard, it, it kind of uh, uh, interprets a little bit for us, and it says, what business do you and I have with each other? What do we have to do with you? But notice, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Hmm. The disciples earlier said, who is this? The demon-possessed man says, you're Jesus, 
the Son of the Most High God. How does that happen? Son of the Most High God. Well, we know how that happens if we know our Bibles. James says you believe in one God, you do well. The demons believe and tremble. The demonic world is in no doubt in this day Jesus is here or today or any other day, the demonic world is in no doubt as to who Jesus is. They know him as God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet, the demon, the, those of that world do things challenging in total opposition to what they know to be true, acting according to what they clearly know is truth. It's usually called insanity, but here it's pointed out to be demon possession. So what the disciples knew but weren't completely confident in, the principalities of the air have known all along, opposed to God, and yet declaring Jesus of Nazareth is the son of the most high God. And so the demons give two requests as, they, as Jesus approaches. One, at the end of verse 28, I beg you, do not torment me. Do not torture me. The demons are terrorized by the presence of Christ. For Christians, the presence of Christ brings comfort. Apparently, um, these demons understood that in the presence of Jesus, the prospect was destruction. And so they plead with Jesus, don't torture us. Don't torture me at this point. They're compelled against all their wishes. They're attracted to the sovereign God that they so intensely hate. um, How many questions do you have about this text? Um, I mean, there's so many here if we really thought about it. Let me just talk a little bit. Evil and unclean spirits, demons are real. We we all agreed with that, surely. But not everything supposedly demonic and satanic is demonic and satanic. In the way that people say that, what they mean by demonic and satanic. Demonic activity hasn't hasn't vanished in our day but it's not as intense as it was apparently in first century. You may argue with that. The devil seeks to imitate everything God has done. God has become incarnate in his son. The devil seeks to be incarnate by his minions in in dwelling people. 
those who open themselves to demonic activity, dabbling in dark practices, engaging in what invites it, uh, are treading on dangerous ground. Turn with me to Romans 1. We talk a lot about Romans 1 and the progress of sin within a society, uh, which is what I think Paul is dealing with. Just want to read a couple of verses here in Romans 1 as we think about. Now, let, let me just say, I want, you, I, I want to be very careful. I don't want to be misunderstood or uh, misinterpreted. Um, if I say anything about the, our society in Christ, I am commanded and I am compelled to have a broken heart for them, to love them. But the Bible does talk to us about what's going on around us. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Now if you know the context What's happened is God is giving a society over to themselves. The first time he says he does it is because the uh, sexual immorality has come rampant. He says, okay, you want to be immoral? You got it. I'll turn you over to that. And then the second section there in Romans 1 as he's going down from about verse 18 down the second section is he gives them over to their homosexuality. Uh, men with men and women with women in unnatural ways. And here's the third time, the, the steps, the progress, the downward spiral of, of sin. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. Let me just give you one definition of this word debased out of one of the lexicons, the Greek dictionary. Debased is pertaining to not being in accordance with what is right, appropriate, or fitting. Not fitting. And so they have this mind that is not appropriate thinking that leads to these inappropriate behaviors to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, Haughty, what's a synonym for haughty? Proud, the very word that a section of our society defines themselves by. And haughtily declare themselves to be so. Boastful, inventors of evil. Did you read an article this week? I don't know why I get into this stuff. An article this week of the professor in California who 
it says children can identify as gender fluid. The children are teaching us about gender, and they can be minotaurs. In other words, you know, minotaurs are anim- half animal, half human, and they can be whatever they want to be, whenever they want to be, top one way, bottom another gender, just, I mean, invent. I, I, <laughs> you got to spend a while to figure something like that out and teach it in a university to teachers who are going to teach our children. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, you don't need to know what's going on with your children. Right? Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Let's don't laugh at these people. Let's be brokenhearted about what is going on and play our part. And I don't know what that is exactly, what that means to me. And I don't know what that means to you. But these folks need the gospel. Yes, they've rejected it. And Satan is able to blind the minds of those who've already chosen to be disbelievers. But we don't have the insight Jesus had. But we don't know that God has given up on one of them. We need to figure something out with the gospel to the reaches of our society. Anyway, back. I'm sorry. That's a... uh, The occult is a real world with evil forces seeking to destroy those who are created in the image of God. Uh, The second one, the second interesting uh, uh, question or or, or, uh, request they have, verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Don't torture us. Don't throw us into the abyss. Well, we go back to the Old Testament. That's the abode of the dead. The demons know that on the day of judgment, they will be relegated uh, to the abyss. They will be relegated eventually to the lake of fire. Uh, Their freedom will be gone, no longer able to roam about and do their work. They recognize Christ as the Holy One, as the judge, and they know His command will consign them to the abyss forever. Notice verse 31. I just saw this this morning. And they begged Him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They don't beg Him not to make them go into the abyss. They beg Him not to command them. Just the word of Jesus commanding them to go, they must go, and they know it. That's the power of Christ over the demonic world. Are they asking for a little more time? I don't know what the request is about. Maybe don't bring the judgment yet, the judgment that will for sure happen at the end. Don't make it happen today. But, but then, for some reason, Jesus gives in to their requests. He uh, agrees to their requests. In the mystery of the providence of God, 
The devil's only able to do what God allows, right? We know that. Only able to operate within the impenetrable boundaries that the Lord Jesus establishes. These demons have overtaken this very, the man's very person, speaking through him, giving him superhuman strength. And yet Jesus, their ruler, is their ruler, and he reveals to us what he's facing here. What's your name, Legion? Well, there's 6,000 uh, Roman soldiers, well, somewhere between four and 6,000 Roman soldiers in the Legion. I don't know if this is a literal how many demons are possessing this man, but there's a whole host of unclean spirits in this man. He's deemed by everyone to be hopeless. But Jesus is the Lord of nature. He stills the storm. He's, we'll see next week, he, He's the Lord of disease. He's the Lord of death. Uh, above all earthly powers. And so He's also Lord over the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places, according to Paul. Here's what I... Don't look for demons behind every bush, but they are in one way or another behind every sin. And just read your Bible and know what Christ says and do what Christ says. Know what Christ says and do what Christ says. In relationship with Christ, greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. And so uh, Jesus acquiesces to their uh, commands. Now a large herd of pigs, verse 32, was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Oh, you want to do that? Okay. Then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Why did Jesus comply with their request? Don't know. You know, uh, uh, some of you have heard me talk about F.W. Borum's little essay on why doesn't God kill the devil. Well, it's good for us that he doesn't, according to Borum, but you can ask me about that later. Scholars uh, have a field day with this. You know, they... they, uh, Here's what I would say. Be content with what God has revealed. Um... Don't look for answers to questions that aren't addressed. Um, You're wasting your time. If I was to give you a whole bunch of conjectured answers, I'd be wasting my time thinking them up and your time telling them to you. Daryl Bach, he asked a few questions. We're not going to answer. Why would Jesus allow animals to be possessed? What happened to the demons when the pig drowned? When the pigs drown? Don't know. Why would they ask to go into pigs instead of saying, just let us go to the next city? Don't know. Um, We're about out of time. I'm still going to do this. Here's, be careful trying to explain everything that you run across in the Scriptures. 
I have a, we have a set of commentaries that we keep in the back <laughs> for reference only, not for uh, consumption. Um, if we were to listen to this fella, he'd have that beautiful, lilting Scottish accent that we all love from Begg and Ferguson and whoever else comes from across the lake. I just want to read you a little bit of a man who is solid on his historical background. But he's too rational. He, he just has to have too many answers to questions that aren't addressed. He says, doubtless this man has seen a Roman legion on march and his poor afflicted mind felt that there was not one demon but a whole regiment inside him. He felt like there was not one demon, but a whole regiment. It may be well that the word haunted him, this legion, because he had seen the atrocities carried out by a Roman legion when he was a child. It is possible that it was the sight of such atrocities which left a scar upon his mind and ultimately sent him mad. So this guy's just crazy because of what happened to him when he was a child. Then he talks a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the PETA people. He doesn't use that term. That's just our familiar term, animal rights. And then, then here he goes. Surely what happened was this. The herd of swine was feeding on the mountainside. Jesus was exerting his power to cure what was a very stubborn case. He was doing the best he could. Now, I'm re- it didn't say it, but Jesus was exerting his power to cure what a very stubborn case, what was a very stubborn case. Suddenly, the man's wild shouts and screams disturbed the swine. They went dashing down the steep place into the sea in blind terror. Look, look, said Jesus, your demons are gone. And then he says, Jesus had to find a way to get into the mind of this poor man. And in that way, he found it. That's a blasphemy. Don't try to answer questions that are unanswered. Be careful. And then the next paragraph, in any event, Can we compare the value of a herd of swine with the value of a man's immortal soul? It's like he's now sitting on the ground at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. He forgot that he lost his mind in the paragraph above. And doesn't Jesus say that, right? Shepherd has a hundred sheep. One of them wanders off. He leaves the 99 for the one. He's more concerned about one who needs to repent than 99 who don't need to repent. That's what this fellow says at the end. Clothed in his right mind. We need to go one more. We do need to get the man okay. 
Verse 34, and we'll just run. When the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. So there, the, the, our pigs are gone. <laughs> we got to go tell the city. We got to go tell it across the country. The people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from, the de- from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and look. They rejoiced. No, they were afraid. Scared them to death. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man... Here's the eyewitness story. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to stay for a while and hold the crusade. No, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and left. (laughs) I mean, I'm thankful for the Word of God. We get things so topsy-turvy, and the Lord straightens us out. So uh, they're afraid, they flee, they tell the story, you know, uh, fear can either draw you to Christ like the disciples, Lord, Lord, or it can cause you to run away from Christ, to drive you away from Christ. Uh, Jesus is asked to leave. You'd think they'd want him to stay uh, and do more. Nope. They asked him to leave, so he got in the boat and he returned, but not before the man begged him to go with them. Uh, at the end, uh, the man, verse 38 from whom the demons had gone, begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. How much has God done for you? Go home and tell it. Go to work and tell it. Tell the people that you come in contact with. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So, the people asked Jesus to leave, he did. The demons asked Jesus to be released to the pigs, he did. This new follower of Christ asked Jesus to go with him, and he says no. You can imagine this new man made new in Christ. I'm a new convert, I need a new start. Um... You made me right. If, if, if I stay with you, I can stay right. I'm liable to fall back here. I need a new environment. Please let me come. And Jesus says, no, go home and tell them. You won't have to say much. They'll look at you and know something's happened to you. And then you'll get to say, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, changed my life. And he can change yours too, just like he ch- if he can change mine, he can change yours. So the Lord Jesus leaves a missionary in the Gentile lands for the time being. We got to go. He gives his life for the sheep as the good shepherd. What's impossible for man, Christ is able to do. Who can change a leopard's spots? Who can change a zebra's stripes? Who can cheer a heart like Jesus by his presence all divine? We need to sing that one day.
true and tender, pure and precious. Oh, what bliss to call him mine. Oh, that's my call, isn't it? All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me and the fairest of 10,000. He will be. We'll be in his presence. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these uh, episodes that show us who you are and show us who we are as we identify very often more with the faith-fading disciples than we do with the converted demoniac. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to remember our faith. Remember you, the object of our faith, when the storms come, knowing that they will. And Lord, for any who have never enjoyed the power of Christ, Father, would you invade their life? Would you kick into gear those of us whose faith has waned? Father, would you send us, empower us to go wherever it is, as we do our daily routines. Help us to loose our tongues in our opportunities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're supposed to sing clothed in righteousness. You get the analogy the demoniac who wore no clothes was clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Read the hymn, the words to the hymn R.C. Sproul wrote. Let's stand and be dismissed. As you pick up your babies in the nursery, apologize for me to the nursery workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our great triune God, be with you all.